Welcome to another edition of Wild, Wicked, and Weird. I am your host, Brett Hedges, along with the beautiful, voluptuous, voluptuous, dark, I'm... dark, tall, and handsome. Thank you. That's more like it. Hi, I'm Will Boyvedic. Hi, everybody. We are just two average guys taking a deep dive into some of the wild, wicked, and weird stories from our hometown of Windsor, Ontario, and around the world. And we especially like going around the world because we've got some listeners from around the world, Willie. It's been pretty exciting stuff recently. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we got some people out in like Denmark, Norway, things like that, right? Yeah. Um, I Yeah, we have a couple of the Scandinavian countries. I think mm-hmm. I saw like a pre-Soviet Union, like Lithuania, Estonia in there <laughs> also maybe. That's nope. the magic of social media. Folks. I actually think so, I saw uh, someone from Prussia was listening. Oh, in yeah. Yes. <laughs> Prince Ferdinand. And if you're, it, no matter where you are in the world, you can follow us on social media. Gavrilo Prince. <laughs> Gavrilo Prince. Like, was it Gavrilo? <laughs> Sorry, you're up. Yeah, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Mm -hmm. At Wild Wicked and Weird Podcast on Facebook, at Wild Wicked W on Twitter. The Twitter sphere. Uh, Follow us on all of your social, uh, on all of your podcast platforms, uh, Google, Spotify, and Apple, please. And please, please, please review us on Apple Podcasts if you have the time. And if you love us, please do so. Please, please leave a review. Yeah. There are children in Africa with one or two reviews. You know, so we'll we need, that out, we, but. <laughs> but like in, in all seriousness, the, uh, the reviews are a big part of, uh, what we're going to be doing in the future and how far we can go with this. We're just yeah. looking to, uh, have some fun and get some people around the world to share in our wild, wicked and weird story. So please give us a review on Facebook. I mean, give us a review on uh, Apple, Apple Podcasts. Podcast. Five stars, everybody. At Wild, Wicked, and Weird. And speaking of Apple Podcasts and Apple Music, if you like the music that y'all hear, that's our buddies uh, Jordo2 and Matt Lalone. They have a band called Dog Tone, and they're freaking awesome guys. So they're on uh, Facebook also. Their music's on YouTube. And uh, we have a new little uh, little lick that we added in uh, in our interludes now that uh, you'll hear from now on. That's one of Matt Lalone's or Dog Tone's uh, songs. But Matt Lalone, he's one. He's shredding as the kids say absolutely he's uh these guys are two of the best musicians i've ever met in my life so and we're proud to uh well, call Nelly, them supporters Nelly of the show Furtado is the best musician i've ever met. i'm like a bird or uh who brought the milkshakes to the yard what was that girl's name uh that was calice my milkshake brings other boys to the yard and they're like it's better than yeah that Damn one right it's, it's better than, than yours i can teach you but, but i have, have to charge yeah la 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 <laughs> la the boys are waiting studies show the boys did not come to the yard but there were some people coming to downtown Windsor and Leamington this past week oh, in fuck yeah. protest. I went, I went down to uh, uh, the riverfront, the old riverfront. Do you want to move this one mm-hmm. second? Oh, yeah, that's good. This is your. So, I brought a, my brother's dog for a walk down to the riverfront, mm-hmm. and we're at the base of the Canada flag, and I just see this this melange of characters just holding court at the bottom of the Canada flag. Yeah. But it wasn't, like, inviting. It was very intimidating. There was a group around them. It reminded me of the the movie Shot Caller or any prison movie. You have, like, <laughs> like the racially segregated gangs. And, like, they were just posted on this bench, like, mean-mugging everyone around. You could tell, like, some of the older people, like, oh, my God, what are they protesting about? And the, there was the one capo, like, their, their leader was this guy in a fedora. And he's just 
walking back and forth, looking at people holding a end the lockdown sign. Like, yeah, end the lockdown. Like, so angry. He's a real Che Guevara there. It was funny, yeah. But it was it reminded me, for some reason, of a very prison thing. Like, you'd expect to see them playing blackjack with cigarettes in the corner. But <laughs> it's supposed to be a, a funly... Uh, a friend, <laughs> friendly and fun uh, protest downtown, but they were out in full force. Let me tell you. Well, as long as they're not hurting anybody <laughs> and uh, not bothering anybody, I hope that they got their message across. And I didn't see any Trump twenty twenty four signs though. Not this time. Not this time. Yeah. No. But uh, yeah, everyone's pissed off, and uh, no one likes being in lockdown. But we're here to tell you some funny stories to make you guys laugh and forget about all that stupid shit that goes on in the world. And uh, we've got some really fun stories for you this week, and we're gonna be taking you to pretty much a lot of different places this week actually we've got a couple different cities that we're visiting and it's gonna be a lot of fun that's right i'm taking you you north so put your your parka on my toque your toque my toque t-o-u-q-u-e i didn't even realize this uh after i i did my story about uh the great mercy run that there was i guess they just did a movie about togo a few years ago I What's guess. the Great Mercy Run? The, it was the, the Great Serum Run. Sorry. That, you mean Balto? Yeah, Balto. Yeah. Was Togo the other dog, though? Yeah, Togo was See, like I'm the dog. i it up already, folks. Yeah, Togo was the dog that they got kind of uh, As soon as there's aside, any but... hint of snow or dogs. I'm Balto! Like, Balto? Is it Balto? Come on. Is it? Is it? No. But, uh, yeah. So where <laughs> are you like, taking hey, me this I week? saw an old friend at the grocery store. Was it Balto? Was he did Balto? You see, did you see Balto? Was he related to Balto? Tell him, tell him the Wilster said hi. Tell hi. him Will says hi. Yeah, so let me just move this for one second. So, I wanted to talk to you about a place called the Belcher Islands. Okay. It's north. It's quite north. It's in the Hudson Bay. I'll show you a little picture of it. Okay. So, uh, do you see that? Okay, That's yeah. my dick. <laughs> no. And right see above that? there. That's where my dick goes. Anyway. See this little blue spot above uh, James, J- Bay of James? James Bay. J of Bane? James Bay. James Anywho, Bay. That little place. Not the shitty director. That's called Belcher Island. Okay. It was named after a polar explorer named Roald Amundsen. And actually, no, it was named. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, yeah, Belcher really rolled off again. the fucking tongue so there. <laughs> it was named after the explorer named James Belcher in the 1700s after he spotted the island and never fucking set foot on it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so um, they just named it after him, a guy that no one really cares about. Sounds like a lot of my supervisors. But there was uh, there's people living there, you know, maybe unbeknownst to him, mm-hmm. and a Norwegian polar explorer, Roald Amundsen, this is the guy I was trying to talk about. Yes. He called the Inuit the happiest, healthiest, most honorable and content people he'd ever met. And he also said that he hoped, quote, civilization may never find them. Oh, jeez. End quote. That's kind of like the main, the main uh, p- patina of what I'm trying to. What the fuck is a patina? <laughs> Let's Google it. I know patina is like, it's like the essence of the story, right? Who the fuck is Rene Zellweger? Patina. The word patina comes from the Italian patina, which means a shallow layer of deposit. Anyways, um, that quote is the essence of my story. Okay. So, this it's a there's a crazy fucking massacre that happened in this place, oh, and it no. just kind of popped up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so the massacre happened a couple of years ago, but I want to tell you about this about this place, the Belcher Islands, this, this desolate, desolate place. Okay. So it was first really kind of made famous in 1950 by an American filmmaker named Robert Flaherty. Mm-hmm. 
he was the first person to document uh, the Belchers and the first outsider to set foot on it. He went to the office to ask the Canadian government, hey, can I get some permission to go dig in this for iron ore in the Belchers? And the guy said, there's no such island as the Belchers. And he opened up a map like the one I showed you, but there was nothing in the middle. Oh, like really? it's so desolate. They didn't even know it was there in 1915. <laughs> like oh. the guy went to the island and said, hey, can I go here? And they're like, Sure, there's fucking nothing there. <laughs> sure, but there's anything. nothing there. They're like, they're going to sell this yeah. guy fucking there's, piece, uh, some beach land. There's tons Florida. of islands up there. Um, non-existent oh, islands are pretty common in the north. There's a lot of large icebergs and stuff. So Flaherty, this guy, I'll get to the important stuff in a second. Don't hold your horses. He wrote that he made two big discoveries. One, that the island's iron, iron ore was shit. And that, the, <laughs> and that the women were very compliant whatever the fuck that means <laughs> whatever your 1915 definition of compliance yeah this might have changed over 100 years so he would end up shooting over 30,000 feet of film but he dropped a cigarette on the film at the end and it was all lost it was all gone so he he raised a bunch of other money and, and a couple of years later he went to another island and filmed a really famous documentary called the nuke of the north okay it's a very famous it was so famous that this guy, Nanook, in the movie, they put his face on the Eskimo Pie wrappers for like 30 years after that. I remember studying this movie. But film is very flammable. Could you imagine filming yes. that in this? Do you know how hard it was to get there back in 1915? That would Do you know how many Baltos died yeah. on the way up there probably? <laughs> Fucking A lot of crazy. Baltos and Togos. So fast forward to our part of the story. 25 years later, the winter of 1941. That's when this shit goes down. Okay. Most of what we know about this story comes from a book called At the End of the World, and it was written in 2001 by a man named Lawrence McMillan. And he literally went there like September 1st, 2001. And wow. the, he talks about how this happened in the context of 9-11, which is pretty, pretty crazy. But it, it was the winter of 1941. It was a very, very tough winter for the Belcher Island Inuit that lived there. They called themselves the Kikitarmiat. I, and I practiced that quite a bit, uh -huh. which means people of the islands. Real original. No. <laughs> <laughs> there were very few seals, walruses, and even Arctic hares to hunt, and there's no vegetation up there. So they spent long nights in their igloos wondering what would happen to them. And one of the things they had to entertain themselves, apart from chewing on the old whale blubber, uh -huh. was the New Testament. And that was left by some missionaries, people that have been there before. It's not really, really clear... Who brought it there? But some people say it was some missionaries or traders that brought Bibles uh, there for the Inuit. And as this winter got more and more worse, they were you know, more desperate and looking for something to believe in during these times. So one night in January, a meteor shower illuminated the skies. And one man in this Inuit tribe named Charlie Oyurak, pronounced Oh, you're back. <laughs> oh, you back? He connected this event with a biblical passage from the book of Matthew and says, The stars will fall from the sky and you will see the Son of Man coming. And it's interesting because I saw a homeless man downtown holding this exact sign yesterday. <laughs> hey, do you know Charlie? <laughs> that asshole owes me 20 bucks. But I mean, the way he interpreted this is that instead of like if, if the missionaries brought maybe a book about science or about space yes. <laughs> instead of this book about all these passages. So Charlie, he was an outsider. He was a really short guy, and he was kind of an outsider, but he considered himself a shaman, or an angakok, <laughs> as they call it there. And he considered Jesus to be the white man angakok, the white man's shaman. So after the meteor shower, 
this guy, Charlie Oyerak, he proclaimed himself Inuit Jesus. What? And he said, quote, I am Inuit Jesus Christ preparing the people for when the other Jesus comes, end quote. Hey, I'm Jesus for right now, but when other Jesus comes, I'm going to sit and be in his right-hand man. And y'all better do what I... And he said, I get your Eskimo pie and your Eskimo pie too, Charlie. No, he said it. I, I told you. And yes, he and you always do not this. have that accent. Sorry, I don't <laughs> no, know where that came from. So he says, I am Inuit Jesus, and he names the guy next to him named Peter Sela, another Inuit guy. He names him as God because <laughs> he was the best hunter in the village. Charlie's oh. a loser. He's No one likes him. He's like, I'm Jesus. You can be God because you caught that wicked fucking walrus last week. That's the only reason. Otherwise, Dan would be God. So... Charlie Oyarak, a.k.a. Jesus Christ of the North, Eskimo Jesus, he was a very short man. And the author of this book, the the End of the World book, yes, um, he really hammers home the fact that he's making all this religious stuff up to avenge the fact that he can't get girls on Tinder or Hinge because they always ask, how tall are you, Charlie? <laughs> he's a really short guy. And he but really I'm hammers Jesus. this home. Like, how tall do you think Jesus was? Jesus had some tight ass abs. He, <laughs> he was a tall. Five, six, five, eight. Who knows? Yeah, he maybe. was a lean one sixty. What does Tinder profile say? Oh, about seventy five <laughs> to eighty at the end. But. Yeah. So, but the part when he said "I'm Inuit Jesus," it really reminded me of like when you're in grade two, pretending to play like Pokemon fighting during recess, and you're like, "I'm Charizard. I I'm Charbar Charizard. You can be Pikachu, yeah. but I'm Charizard." Like just telling everyone that. Yeah, like I'm in charge, but he's like. I'm making sure that he's got the cooler title. You can be Pikachu because you make the best whale blubber. That's right. That's why. Oh, so our two protagonists, Charlie and Peter, or Jesus and God, they would paint a vision of heaven to the townspeople or their, you know, their tribe. They would tell them that there would be more seals and walruses than you can shake a stick at. Whale blubber as far as the eye can see. <laughs> as long as you call me Inuit Jesus. You so, said you'd eat it well, blah, blah. While they were telling the town about how great the second coming will be when other Jesus comes, they instructed some of their followers to kill all the sled dogs because oh. you don't need to travel when it's the end of the world. And this also meant that no one could escape. This is why Jim Jones went to the middle of the fucking jungle. Because yeah. when you have a cult, when you want power over people, you need to take away their means of escape. Yeah, this you need is, to isolate them. When they kill the sled dogs, this is really the first, like bad thing that happens this is where it really starts to go downhill and 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 but an interesting part of this story is the way that peter god his friend charlie's buddy he was able to blend old traditions with the new this new religion okay because the the inuit they believe that everything has a soul the animals rocks even rain it all has a soul and a soul of any kind can travel from one being to another Okay. So a person might still look the same on the outside, but they could have a completely different spirit. So when Peter told his fellow islanders that even though he looks the same on the outside, on the inside, he was like really God. Like totally, guys, I'm like actually God inside. I know I just look like Charlie, but actually I'm God. <laughs> Charlie's in that rack over there. I'm God. I'm God. And- now we have Chicago accents. I don't know why, but... uh. We'll so figure it out. When he said, hey, I look different. On, I look the same on the outside, but I'm a totally different person on the inside. They're like, why didn't you say it was the old spirit rock thing? Come on. <laughs> well, of course we know that. 
So, well, why didn't you say so? Well, why didn't you say so, Charlie? What's up? Just like the gatekeeper at the City of Oz. Why didn't you say oh. so? Come on in. All I ever wanted was some courage. Oh. Pay no attention oh. to the man oh. behind the curtain. <laughs> Anyways, what the fuck were we talking about? Um, so, yeah, when he said this, this is what kind of really sold it. You know, that's where they were able to... And the win- they were about to die of starvation. They're like, we'll believe in anything at this point. Yeah, okay, kill the dogs, let's eat. So... I don't condone the person with The person with killed Balto. <laughs> the person with the most sense was a teenage girl named Sarah Appawalk. She was the first person to disagree with Peter Sala. She literally went up to him in the middle of the eagle and said, you're not God. <laughs> like, there's no way you're fucking God. And one thing we know about teenage girls, Brett... Teenage girls are one of the many tools of the devil. That's right, and they're probably one of the meanest people in the world. So Peter, a.k.a. God, he declared the girl to be Satan, and one of her own brothers, a zealous follower named Alec Appawak, he grabbed her by the hair and smashed her face against a rock, and then they held her face close to a hot stove to see if she was good or evil. Oh, man. I'm not sure how this test works, but I don't think she passed because... Another teenager named Akinik murdered her by smashing her head oh. against the fa- against the barrel of a rifle, oh. all because she told a forty-seven-year-old hunter that he's not actually God. So, oh man! After this other girl, Akinik kills her. She comes back into the igloo, and she complained that her hands were cold because of the rifle. Everyone in the igloo was pleased. They all said, "Let us be thankful. Satan is gone." So, they're happy. Praise the Lord, Satan's gone. The next day, another man starts to think like Sarah did. You know, there's more than one person who says, uh, something ain't ain't right here. Yeah. So, a 47-year-old man named Gitawiak, he argued with Oirak and Salah, Peter and (laughs) Charlie, a.k.a. Jesus and God. Jesus and God. He argued that their preaching had to stop, that it had gone too far. But what else do we know, Brett? That 47-year-old men named Kitawak are one of the many tools <laughs> of the devil. <laughs> so they had a fight, and after a scuffle with the men, he fled the meeting and retired to his own igloo. But he was killed the next morning. Uh, they all went back to his uh, place and kind of antagonized him outside the igloo. And he was struck by a harpoon thrown by Peter Sala. What the fuck? <laughs> thrown by God. <laughs> A, a fucking harpoon. harpoon, and then they he was then they shot him, and he was uh, hit with two other bullets fired through the window. So I guess eagles have bullets, or have windows. <laughs> <laughs> they have bullets too, obviously. Eagles, got... yes, they can form windows. Yeah, yes. that's oh my god, a a, a, har- a harpoon <laughs> from God right to the dome. Yeah, and oh, uh, poor guy. Yeah, you know how Jesus when he comes back, he has the marks on his hands and his feet. You know, he comes back. Yeah. Maybe in this religion, instead of nail wounds, it's like a harpoon through the feet and two bullet wounds on each thing. That's the, that's the reincarnation. So, um, and there was, so after this happened, uh, among this among this band of people, there was a fairly new family there, and it comprised of a 42-year-old hunter named Quarak, his son-in-law Alec, and a handful of women and children. So they have been them, with them for a couple months because these groups are migratory and they, yeah. you know, they... They, uh, they stay together. They travel and they join in with other groups and they leave and stuff like that. Yeah, they're nomads. So almost everyone in this family fell prey to Charlie, Charlie's preachings. Mm-hmm. Uh, with only Alec, the son-in-law, he was refusing to accept these wild claims. 
On February 9th, an argument ensued between the men. And as Alec walked away from the encounter, Charlie declared him the devil. And this kid's dad that he just called the devil, his dad's standing next to him. And he says, that guy's the devil. Hey, shoot your son in the back of the head. And with no hesitation, Quarak, this 42-year-old hunter, the leader of the family, just shoots his own son-in-law in the back of the head, point what? blank range. Because this guy he just fucking met told him to. Told him that his son-in-law. Isn't this the, like some Lord the of the Flies the shit? This Honestly, is crazy. It, it, this is fucking. This is letting the mob rule. So all these people died. There's these three murders. Three weeks later, Peter Sala, he was recruit or God, he was recruited by a guy named Ernest Riddle to guide him by dog sled on a business trip from a larger Hudson's Bay Company post at Great Well River on the coast of Quebec. And like he he would take jobs like this and navigate dog sleds and stuff like that. Yeah. While they were there on the trip, Peter Sala confided to the men, by the way, there had been three murders back on Belcher Island, which was caused by a cult that he started. <laughs> How do you think that conversation went? Like you just been you've been traveling for days with these people and you're like eating a sandwich on a break and you're like Hey, uh, guys, you know how meteor showers can make people think God is inside them and <laughs> you harpoon a guy? We've all been there, right? You know, and they all just sometimes... looked at him and said, what the fuck are you talking about? And they notified the RCMP immediately. And they, this guy, Riddell, he returned back to the Belchers with Peter Sala. And, uh, but when they were back on the islands, they learned of another terrible tragedy that happened while they were gone. So while they were gone, Peter Sala got his 25-year-old sister, Mina, who was the fucking craziest one out of this whole religious bunch. She Objectively had, crazy. <laughs> she had rung among the igloos one night, shouting and gesturing that Jesus was coming to take the people to heaven. She was a big girl, and she intimidated a dozen women and children out of their igloos in the cold weather and herded them onto the sea ice to meet their savior. She said, Jesus is is coming down from the sky in a kayak to save us. Like, she had this image of him kayaking the clouds and coming and saving them. Wow. That's literally what she said. Mental illness is real. Do you know close. how north? this? The temperature was minus 30 Celsius. That's so bad. Mina kept her own parka on, but she ordered everyone else to take off their clothes. She ran around and literally started tearing the pants and parkas off these little children. What the fuck? After a couple minutes, some of the other mothers, they realized this is fucking crazy. They put the clothes back on their kids. They fought Mina off and they left. But some Thank of the God. other kids, they didn't. It was too late for them. Six people died, including Mina's own 55-year-old mother, her 32-year-old sister, which these, these people are related to Peter also. Yeah. That's his mother and sister. And four children, oh. a 13-year-old, 8-year-old, 7-year-old, and a 6-year-old. One of the the eight year old was Peter Salas' son, his oh own son. So her ne- her nephew. Yeah, her oh, own nephew and her own mother and sister. She killed. She killed her own family. So by now, this Riddell guy, he comes back to the island where he thinks three people were died. Turns out it was <laughs> fucking nine people. Yeah. So he's growing frantic. But in Ottawa, the RCMP are having a hard time because every aircraft in the country is in the Air Force for the fucking this thing going on called World War Two. Oh my. Because it's 1941. So after weeks of delay, they finally managed to find spare parts for an old Norseman aircraft that had been sitting in mothballs in Ottawa. Like they put together a plane because there was no planes available to go there. They boarded a pilot. And on April 6th, 
they left for Moose Factory on the shore of James Bay mm-hmm. where they could uh, rendezvous with other people and a coroner and other RCMP investigators to um, Belcher Island by dog sled or whatever. Holy shit. So they spent six days touring the islands to get a lay of the land. They found some of the bodies and they interviewed witnesses. And they were piecing together the awful, awful event. And the Inuit, they cooperated fully. They've never even seen RCMP before. They're just like, yeah, yeah this happened. Oh, yeah, we killed them. Oh, yeah, he's God. Oh, yeah, that, that's Jesus over there. Yeah. And they told him, like, nothing. So the police, they left the Belchers on April 16th with the prisoners. And the prisoners were wide-eyed. They had never seen trees before, let alone flown through the clouds. They were delighted. They were ecstatic. And they were so happy that they were promised three warm meals a day. Like, they were unbelievably happy. <laughs> for And they're being tried for murder. <laughs> for starting a cult. So... In Ottawa, they realized they don't they don't want to hold a trial in some southern courtroom, but they want to hold the trial in the Belchers to kind of demonstrate to all the Inuit people that hey, we're the fucking boss here. Yeah, like what we say goes. How there's there's a courtroom in the Belcher Islands? They went and fucking built a courtroom there. They oh went and God. put a tent together. The trial started on August nineteenth, and they brought a bunch of newspaper reporters from Toronto. And when they got there, despite the gravity of the affair, it was like a carnival atmosphere that engulfed the judicial part the, the that engulfed the judicial party when they disembarked onto the islands. This is a really boring place. Yeah, so, man. Anything is better than nothing. They're like, holy shit, something's happening over here. Yeah. Here's a quote. About fifty Eskimos smilingly greeted the party on its arrival, and among them were those whose lives are at stake in the trial. Adliok, one of the accused men, greeted Constable George Dexter affectionately, throwing his arms around the RCMP officer. <laughs> hey, what's up, man? Can't wait to go to court for you trying to put me in the fucking electric chair. Yeah, it's going to be good times. Oh, man. So they couldn't find a six-man jury for this event to the point where they had to bring... They, the reporters had to sit as jurors for the trial. The third juryman was Ernest Riddell, the guy <laughs> who hired Peter Salen found out about this whole thing. And they found the rest of them, they found jury members from the members of a geological party whose ship was stopped in the Belchers a week before. Like, they were just on a thing and they're like, hey, you guys got to stand jury trial for a bunch of Eskimos that killed a bunch of people in a religious cult. Could you imagine that? They're in the middle of fucking nowhere and they get called for, for jury, jury duty. duty. They'll always find you for jury duty. Man, I don't want to do jury duty even if it's six blocks away from my I live pretty close to downtown. I do not want to do listen, jury duty. Listen to this. The courtroom was an RCMP tent with the judge sitting at a table draped with the Union Jack and a picture of the royal family hanging behind him. Uh-huh. The RCMP stenographer was there and dozens of Inuit spectators sitting on the floor on pieces of seal skin. And every single one of them was wheezing, coughing, and sputtering because there was a huge influenza outbreak oh, that God. had been brought by the prisoners returning home from Moose Factory. One woman actually died from oh. this influenza outbreak. There's only 150 people here. That's fine. And one of them died just from all these people coming back. So you're either going to die or you're going to do jury duty. And either this way. brought the body count to double digits. He was the 10th person. Jesus. So Mina, the crazy sister, she was diagnosed as insane before the trial. She was charged with murdering a six-year-old Johansi. That was one of the children. Uh-huh. And that was they decided just to charge her for one person, the six-year-old. And it was symbolic because six people died. Yeah. Like one year for every, I, I guess. I don't know. That's what, it, that's what it said. 
Mina was, she was like strapped to the courtroom, hollering, sobbing, pulling a whole Charlie Manson. She was fucking crazy. Um, the, her co-accused just freely admitted to her their crimes. So here's uh, the defense lawyer asking Korak, the hunter from the, the new family that had just kind of moved there. Yeah. The defense lawyer asked, did anyone tell you to kill Alec Ekpuk? Yes. The defense lawyer says, who? Korak says, Charlie. And he asks, well, did you have a quarrel with Alec, who's his stepson? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Korak, he says, no. Defense lawyer asks, why did you shoot him? He says, Charlie said that he was Satan. The defense lawyer asked, did you believe him? And he's replied, I believed him. He said that Jesus was going to come soon and that he didn't want to see any bad people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. And then when he was... Uh, Talking to Charlie, the case defense dis- lawyer, he says, dismissed, right? why did you tell Korak to kill Alec? And Charlie says, I didn't have my right senses. If I had had my right senses, I would not have told him to murder that fellow, a.k.a. his, his son. His son. Yeah. So the judge, he appeared moved by what he called the somber gloom of these island tundras. It's a really desolate place. The judge said, Judge Plaxton was their name, they said, Life in this desolate region, exposed as it is to the cruelest conditions and ever on the verge of extermination, is not conductive to excessive gentleness. Conducive. Con- oh, what did I say? Conductive? Yeah. Oh my god, thank you. Do the poor <laughs> I was thinking about you. We should you. keep that. That's funny. Okay. <laughs> so Judge Plaxton was their name, and they said, Life in this desolate region exposed as it is to the cruelest conditions and ever on the verge of extermination is not conducive to excessive gentleness. Damn. Well said. The jury apparently agreed. So for Sarah's death, the first one who died, they actually acquitted Alec Apokwok, the other Alec, and found Akiknik, the girl who killed her at the the barrel rifle, the rifle barrel, uh, they found her not guilty on account of temporary insanity. For the deaths of everyone else, it found Peter Sela, Adlicock, Charlie O, and Korak, the hunter, they found them each guilty of manslaughter. Mina, the sister, was declared insane and unfit to stand trial for that mm-hmm. one. So Jesus and God, Sela and Charlie, they were sentenced to two years imprisonment, and the other guy, Adlicock, got one. And the other ones, Mina and Aknik, they were ordered into indefinite custody. And um, the five of them were loaded onto the schooner for Fort Charles and taken to Moose Factory, which is off the coast of James Bay. And they lived in a little RCMP compound in like a work program of James Bay. Not really prison. None of them did more than a year for killing nine people. Yeah. Well, they killed three and Mina killed six. She She was the craziest fucking one. She got off. Yeah. So despite his own conviction, Korak... (laughs) The guy, he was allowed to stay in the Belchers. This is the guy who killed his own son. And he was a skilled hunter, so as part of his punishment, they say, hey, you're not going to prison, but you have to give everyone a year's supply of meat for all these families and exiled <laughs> men. When they announced this, he literally jumped up in the courtroom and said, whoopee, yeah! <laughs> like This See, is I a can... man who's on trial for shooting his son in the head because a man he had just met who said he was Jesus called his son Satan, and he screamed up and yelled, whoopee, when they let him off and said he has to provide enough seals for a year for everyone. For everyone on the island. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Holy so, shit. Out of, all, out of all of them, Peter Sela, a.k.a. God, he regretted everything the most for his dark deeds of course. this winter. So as an old man, he eventually returned to the Belchers, 
and he was a shunned figure. They, he was an outcast. They didn't let him in any of the villages there. And one Sunday afternoon in 1987, two visitors actually knocked on his door in the village on the Belchers. It was two priests that were making their rounds, offering Eucharist services to the shut-ins of the community. Mm-hmm. When they came to his door, no one answered. And they kind of peeked inside and saw that he was sleeping. And the one priest, he asked the other priest if uh, they should wake him, wake up this old man for his communion. The other priest said, let's not. We'd better let sleeping gods lie. Gods. <laughs> That's what I found in an oh article. Oh my god. <laughs> They're calling this. Let's not let him. He's a god. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to go to the Belcher Islands? Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. Man, I want to go to the Muskokas. Isn't that a fun, loving story? Holy shit. 1941 was a rough year. Yeah, dude. dude. If only they had Game Boys up there. Or like Scrabble. Fucking Risk. Anything. Yeah. Damn. Give me a notepad. I'm Jesus. You know what that means? Let's kill all the fucking dogs. Let's do it. 16-year-old girl? She's got to go. Balto. Kill your son. Sorry, boy. <laughs> oh, Boom. no. Not Bal- Balto. Would, he'd get away. He would get he'd away. He'd find a way. He'd figure it out. Yeah. 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 All right. Time for a break? Yeah, let's take a breaky-poo. All right. Brought to you by our newest sponsor, Windsor's Penalty Box Restaurant. Oh, yeah. Oh, would kill for a delight right now. Wild, Wicked, and Weird is brought to you by Windsor's Penalty Box Restaurant, home of the original Chicken Delight and many other mouth-watering menu items to go along with daily specials. Located at 2151 Walker Road at the corner of Tecumseh in the heart of our community. Call Windsor's Penalty Box today at 519-253-3310 from 10.30 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Saturday for a delightful and affordable dining experience. Folks, they have perfected a safe and sanitized takeout system so you don't need to worry during these tough times. Every penalty box meal is made fresh to order, so try a hand-packed burger, a made-in-house gyro, ribs, pasta dishes, salads, kids' meals, or their variety of soups. My favorite is the lemon chicken rice soup, and oh my, is it ever delicious. If you know, you know, and if you don't, you should. So give Windsor's Penalty Box Restaurant a call tonight at 519-253-3310. Windsor's Penalty Box Restaurant, home of the original Chicken Delight. Now listen up, here's a story about a little guy that lives in the blue world. Nothing? Oh. And all night, all night. <laughs> You're super uncomfortable because you can't sit in the good chair. Look who's sitting high and mighty in the good chair now. I fucking hate this chair. That's okay. So if you guys want to donate a computer chair to the... Brett said, I feel like I'm in an eighth grade dance at the side. <laughs> Sitting with my knees. With like, my knees to the side. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just not going to bother you. in your pockets. <laughs> Man, it would be sweet to go back all the way to like, I don't know, like first or second grade and just be like, just be like a ghost on the wall and go back to like 1997. Like six-year-old Willie just shit in his pants and <laughs> in French school just... See, Brett pissing in the class plant (laughs) (laughs) mrs bankendorf no (laughs) just can't um 
It wasn't me. It was a dry plant. You forgot to water him yesterday. I saw it. Okay, but tonight I'm going to take you back to 1997, buddy. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm taking you back to 97, to the time when the Detroit Red Wings were the Stanley Cup champions. They had just beat the Philadelphia Flyers 4-0. So this is the first cup. Oh, the first one. This is 97. Okay. So they had just beat the uh, Philadelphia Flyers. Darren McCarty scores the big goal in game four. Yeah, they were just the uh, They were the big shit, man. They were just the best, dude. Mm-hmm. This was a time of prosperity in the city of Windsor. Jobs were plentiful. Cherry Kool-Aid flowed like water at the Hedges House in Harrow. And children would soon be impacted by the phenomenon known as Pokemon. Oh, shit. But we're not here to talk about Ash Ketchum, Pikachu, Misty, and Brock. No, we need three, four. I need four hours for that. Exactly. We're, we're, we, we're not going there today. We're not going to try and catch them all. This week, we're, we will be learning about the catching of a killer, though. Okay. You see what I did there? Yeah, I like uh, it. I like that. I like it. So okay, so this is a famous case from Windsor. Let me get the... I like it. I want it. I'm there. Okay. So let me just get comfortable here. Otherwise, I'm gonna look at you like an idiot the rest of the ways. So. All right. So this is a famous case from Windsor, and it starts on Labor Day weekend in 1997. Okay. And you know what happens on Labor Day weekend every year? So people were living it up at the Harrow Fair, people obviously. Go to Grand Bend. <laughs> no, everyone was the Harrow Fair. Nice. Everyone went to the Harrow Fair. Damn it. No doubt, but okay, but like on Sunday night of the Labor Day weekend, like there's usually parties going on. Were you just like puking your guts out in the? Tub I was six. The... Uh oh, oh man, I was at the zipper. What was like the one that like spun around like the gravitron or something. Gravitron, like yeah. But yeah. back in the day, my sister, I was bigger, right? So <laughs> I was bigger, so I could go on the rides at an older yeah. time. And my sister thought it would be super funny to take me on the zipper when I was like eight. What's the zipper? So that was the one where you would like get in like a little cage and you would like get flipped around in your tiny cage. And, like, I was way too young to be in this. And my sister thought it would be hilarious if I went. And like this Harrow Fair thing called the zipper? Well, you go in a cage. Yeah. (laughs) And you flip around in in a circle. And so when we get in, she's like, oh, Brett's going to be fine. No worries. And if you don't like it, you'll just scream. And then then they'll just let you out. Not a problem. (laughs) So, like, I'm, like, seven or eight. And she's, like, we get on this ride. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And it starts. And it's way more violent than she thinks he is. And I start crying right away. I'm like, stop the ride stop the ride oh my god i was crying the entire time and she's just laughing her ass off and the carniers are like laughing at me like looking like that's that's the one yeah look at that one that's the kid that's crying i had money on that one that's right fuck oh my god that's bad i had money on the fat one that's right he gonna puke i swear he might puke on his sister i'm sucking down that cherry cola right before this big mistake okay anyway but in 1997. Sucking on the sweet tea of that <laughs> cherry cola. Cherry cola. Cherry Kool-Aid. Oh. Cherry Kool-Aid, motherfuckers. Get it right. And cherry cola. Oh, yeah, big time. Big 97. But, like, okay, like, on on Labor Day weekends, like, there's parties, right? Like, and there was big parties back in the day in 97, because what was the n- number one song back in 97? Mo Money, Mo Problems by Notorious B.I.G. In 97? 97. Wow. So Notorious B.I.G. Uh, a little after this, yeah. A little did, a- did he die in 97? I'm not sure. We'll do that in another episode. But we're not going to talk about Biggie. We're not here to talk about Pokemon. We're not here to about fucking that. We're talking about a murder. And at one particular party at 921 Wellington in West Windsor on September 1st, 1997 march 9th 1997 that's when biggie died so that makes sense okay so he got okay I'm thank sorry. you i had to google it i'm thank- sorry i'm so stupid it's okay otherwise everyone would have been googling on their phones everyone while watching this and so now screaming. they know yeah 
Everyone's better for knowing All this. three people are screaming at me. But I'm going to take you to a party at 921 Wellington in West Windsor where things got a little out of hand. Oh, I know that place. I do too. My <laughs> my my in-laws don't live too far from there. Okay. And I have lived in that area, and uh, it's fun. A couple of houses uh, – sorry. So at this one particular party at 921 Wellington in West Windsor, things got out of hand. A couple of down-homers with roots down back in New Brunswick got together to celebrate. Booze was drank. Crack was smoked. Things got stolen. People got heated. Some things were said when they shouldn't have. And early in the morning on September 1st, 1997, at the end of this wild party, one person was shot dead. Damn. They're checking off all the boxes there. When you're like, we got crack. We got booze. We got mischief. I'm like, we got a murder coming We up. got a story tonight. We got some wild, wicked, and weird happening tonight. So later that morning on September 1st, 1997, the body of a man was found in the wooded area of a local park with one gunshot wound to the back of his head. The body had a bunch of trauma to it, but otherwise it was just one gunshot. The body had a bu- the body had a bunch of trauma to it, but otherwise it was just one gunshot wound to the head, and it was with a 22 caliber handgun. So not not a big bullet, a smaller bullet, right? The man was later identified as Ronald Lougheed, a member of the West End Gang of Windsor, Ontario. But leads were thin until a scrapyard employee noticed some blood on the seat of a 1979 white Buick Riviera. Oh, it's always the scrapyard. It's always the scrapyard. Always. And And that truck had just been sold to him by a man named Ken Legacy of Windsor. Now, police did forensic analysis of the blood found in Ken's truck, and bingo, it matches the blood of Ron Lougheed. So, police decide to pay Ken a visit. Now, Ken, being a law-abiding citizen, had no idea about the death of Ronald Lougheed, but he did, however, happen to loan his car to a friend that weekend. His name was Wayne Joseph Ross, who was described as an Aboriginal Canadian with the nickname Wahoo. I did not give him that nickname. That is the nickname given to him in the story. So, like, he's, to his friends and to his close people and to uh, all of the... Uh, administration in this case, let's say. The administration His, of the West End gang? <laughs> he is known as Wahoo. Okay. So according to Ken, Wah- Wahoo had told him that he had killed Ronald and had used Ken's car to dump Lahid's body. He was a friend of Wahoo, but he gave him up right away to save his own ass. <laughs> wow. So Ken gave up his buddy right away, and he cut a deal with the cops to help with the investigation. So Ken's a smart man. He made a smart move there. Snatched. He did. So Ken gave a video statement say, stating his innocence and telling them what he knew. Afterwards, he negotiated a deal with the Windsor police where he was going to get five grand forgiveness of up to $700 in unpaid fines and some leniency in, a, in an upcoming trial for drug offenses, Wait, right? they were giving him $5,000? To help in the investigation if everything what went is? well. Yep. So this is what I'm talking about. This is how things went in 97, bro. Wow. So if he... If he helps with the cops, so he's going to get all that, uh, get some things taken care of for him. So after the cops talk to Ken, they get a search warrant for 921 Wellington Avenue. So if you guys don't know, that's West Windsor, off, right off of College Avenue. And to they search this house for evidence, and boy, do they find some evidence. Not only do they find bloodstains on the carpet, they find a shell casing for a 22 caliber bullet. So they quickly determine that this is where Ronald Lougheed was shot and killed prior to his body being moved. So they arrested the owner of the unit, a young man named William Murdoch McKenzie. So remember that name, William McKenzie. And they interrogated Will, but he goes by Billy. They interrogate him regarding the murders, but Billy denies any involvement with the crime. And after a certain amount of time, they have to release him due to lack of evidence, right? This This is the system. So the cops come up with a plan for Ken to earn his money. 
So Kenny Boy is going to introduce himself to an undercover cop and introduce him to a group of his friends, including William Murdoch McKenzie, or Billy, as we'll call him, Wayne Ross, or Wahoo, and a guy named Michael Rainin, who isn't important until the end of the story, so it doesn't really matter. Plus anyone that can give them information on the murder, etc. Right. So, so they know if they know some things. Right. They know that Ronald died at Billy's house, and that allegedly Wahoo had used Ken's car to dump the body. But they didn't know how or who. Or sorry, they didn't know who or how many people contributed to the death. Right. So that's always the question. Like, you can hear a confession, but you until you know the facts, you can't go and charge anyone. Right. Without good evidence so they charged but they do have evidence of other things so they charged wahoo and michael rainin as uh with obstruction of justice and other charges with moving and dumping a body so they get they get those guys in there they get them sweating they get them charges there because they know that that's what happened um but they can't charge anyone with murder right because there's no confession there's no there's no uh no gun no nothing no gun no weapon no something so you need a confession or you need a murder you need a miracle. You need a miracle. <laughs> and for the prosecutor to win, you need a lot of shit. So you need a confession, you need a murder weapon, and to get that, you need a pro. So they call in a pro, a veteran undercover... Jo- uh, uh, <clears throat> so they do call in a pro. They call in a veteran undercover cop to get the job done. But they can't just send any person into this group of crack-smoking, booze-drinking criminals that are mostly from New Brunswick, right? If they want someone to play the part, they have to look the part. So that's where our main character comes in this week. Our main character's name is Josh Ouellette. So if you're from Windsor, we we bastardize the word Olette. So we're going to give him the, the the privilege of being called Ouellette tonight because okay. he's French-Canadian. But he goes by the name Luke Landry. So Luke is a longtime undercover cop from Bathurst, New, New Brunswick, and he is the undercover brother of Acadia, if you will. So I... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, see, so he's the Acadien undercover brother. We're still in Windsor, right? Or right now, yeah. Everyone from New Brunswick. A lot of these people. Thank you for asking. So, a lot of these people. The West End gang is something that originated in Montreal. But oh, really? Yeah. So, so it's not the West End of Windsor. No. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought too. Right. So they're supposed. <laughs> thank you for. <laughs> yes. Well, so like they're supposed to be like some chapter of the of the West End gang. We will get to that eventually. But like these guys are small time, small time players in uh, in the West End gang. And uh, so that's where this guy comes in. Because a lot of these guys come from New Brunswick to Windsor to find work and to just find criminal activity or whatever. They try to find work, but they end up in crime after. Yeah. Right? So in order to inter- in- in to infiltrate Did a group of... That? Yeah, second. what is that? That's the fucking West End gang. You're Dude, talking shit. I thought that you... You heard that though, right? <laughs> so, I don't know what that was. What the fuck was that? Okay. We take all that back. The show's over. Um, <laughs> we had West some End weird shit over there. Yeah. Uh, so these guys are from the West End gang, right? So they have to bring someone in that's from their home area that they'll believe is from their home area so that he can pretend to be a friend. So the gang's from Montreal, but they have ties in New Brunswick also? Yes. And some of these people end up in Windsor. Oh, okay. They call themselves the West End gang. It's whatever. Like they, they could. It's just like me saying that I'm part of a gang, but the Westies, yeah, Mickey like Featherstone, exactly. Like the New York Westies, Mickey yeah. Like Mitchell. so, these guys say they're in the West End gang. I don't know, but anyway. So anyway, Luke Landry is the guy we're talking about. He's the longtime undercover cop, undercover brother, under Akedjen, brother, undercover brother. So he's from Bathurst. So he's the liaison person for like the Inkin the Canadian intelligence service of Ontario. So he's supposed to get people to do this kind of job. Luke does. So he's like a sergeant. 
So like he he calls people and say, okay, I have this I have this assignment. Can you please take it? Whatever. So he gets a call from a guy named Neil Jessup from the Windsor Police, right? And Neil Jessup is a really respected cop in Canada, Canadian history. He he died recently. Okay. So Neil Jessup calls Luke, or his name's Josh, but he, we'll call him Luke for the story. And and he explains the situation. We need an undercover cop to infiltrate this uh, this group of criminals. We need to try and find a confession for a murder. Wait, Can is you... his name Luke Landry? Luke Landry is his undercover name. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, I'm okay. sorry. That's that's his fake name. <laughs> Luke Landry is his fake name. Okay. Pardon me. So so Neil Jessup calls Josh, who is Luke. Yeah. Right. So gotcha. Luke. I feel like I'm there. Yeah. Okay. So Luke is supposed to delegate who gets these cases, but no one wants this case. No one's like, I'm not going to go try and... The West End Gang? Forget about it. Well, the thing is, though, that they're not really... They're not super uh, high profile. There are a lot of petty criminals. They they steal a lot of small-time shit. They smoke crack. They they just get... They're usually just feeding their addiction, right? So no one really wants to infiltrate that scene. But this guy, he's much older than what they want, but he thinks that he can pull off the part, right? So Luke is a really good undercover agent, and he's been in, in like 100 undercover stings before so like he does he knows what to do yeah so luke takes the job he grows out his hair he takes out his dentures and just went full out to look like a recovering addict or, or crackhead without ever doing drugs because when you're an undercover you can't commit crimes when you're undercover because yeah. you still don't you're not well, protected they say but exactly donnie brasco exactly yeah that's true the I, just, Joey Piston. I just watched that a little while ago actually it was pretty sweet uh, so Luke takes the job. He grows out his hair, right? And then he flies down from New Brunswick to Windsor and meets up with Neil Neil Jessup. So here's the breakdown. So Ken is going to work for the cops, and he's the agent, right? So Luke is the undercover undercover cop, and Billy is the target, right? So they want to get Billy to try and confess to murder. That's the big that's the big thing because they think that Billy or Wahoo killed them, killed uh, Ronald, yeah. but they don't know which one specifically. Because if they play it off on one inch, one on one another, they can both get off of it, right? So that's that's what they say. So Billy is a white male, early forties, five foot nine. Say nothing. Exactly, <laughs> but the cops don't have but shit. they know that someone died at that guy's house. Whose house is it again? Billy's house. Oh, so it's his Ronald house. Wow, Ronald okay. died at Billy's house, but they don't know if Billy or Wayne, aka Wahoo, killed him. So that's what has to happen, right? So Billy is a guy in his early 40s. He's about 5'9", short brown hair. He's described as a crackhead by Loves Luke. crack. So they have... Crazy about crack. <laughs> so Luke describes him as a crackhead. Uh, they have a warrant for Billy to be under observation by Luke from March 4th until May 1st, right? 1998. So everything that Ken and Luke do during this time is in an attempt to get Billy to confess. But they can't be too sketchy, otherwise Billy will figure it out and he'll, he won't say anything. And he'll run and tell Wahoo, and then they're fucked, right? All the money down the drain, whatever. Yeah. So there's Crack a lot. Kids are familiar with that. <laughs> exactly. So the murder happened on September 1st, 1997. And the investigation, the undercover investigation, begins March 4th, 98. Wow. So these guys definitely think they're in the clear. After exactly, murder, right? Like, yeah. they, give them, they give them a lot of time. That's why I told you those dates, right? That's a full six months, right? So you think, okay, maybe you're going to re- relax a little bit. So Luke comes to town and meets Ken to get acquainted. Relax. Pokemon just came out. That's right. Got to catch them all. Yeah. Got to catch them all. Um, Tom was relaxing. That's right. Luke I'm comes. I'm battling. I can't turn it off. Mom, I can't, I can't. I can't turn it off in the middle of a battle. <laughs> I told you this yesterday. <laughs> 
So Luke comes to town to meet Ken and gets acquainted prior to the investigation. And it is no surprise that Ken is a fucking sketchy dude <laughs> who is apprehensive about helping the police. But he's he's in a in a hard he's in a, between a rock and a hard place. He has nowhere to stand, right? He has no leg to stand on. So the the plan is hatched, and this is the backstory. Okay, so it just so happens that Ken was at the Alouettes Club on Central and ran into an old friend Luke from back home in New Brunswick. He just moved to Windsor and needs a job. Sounds simple enough, right? Okay. So they're gonna buy this. On March 6th, Luke meets Billy for the first time. So Ken uh, has his address listed as Billy's address, so he gets his mail there, apparently. Okay. So it's really easy for Ken to go over there for no reason to go and meet Billy, right? Uh, so Ken goes to grab his mail from Billy's place and introduces Luke. Uh, after they introduce each other, he invites him to the Alouette bar for a beer later. They agree, whatever. They shoot the shit. He just tries to get him more comfortable with him, right? Uh, later in the day, they go back. And Billy lets him in and Luke describes the house as a hoarder's house, <laughs> a crack house that has a massive section of the carpet cut out thanks to the search warrant. And they haven't done anything to try and replace it or anything. It's just oh a massive, massive section of carpet just cut out. Blood. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the car- uh, uh, And uh, while they're out searching the apartment or whatever, they wired it up, too. So oh, everything man. that Billy is saying, they can hear them. So they're trying to get him to confess, but he won't say shit in his own house. Right. Which is smart. So they, so uh, Luke brings some beers and they begin to drink and chat, but nothing really comes of the night. Just a trust building evening. Uh, Luke lies about needing to get a job, so Billy says, "Okay, look, well, you can apply at this. Uh, it's cleaner's place. You can apply at St. Clair College, that kind of thing." So he goes and he he applies at these places to cover his ass. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so when Luke gets goes to the grocery store and to get smokes, he goes to see if uh, Billy's gonna be like, "Who the fuck is this guy? Like, why'd you bring him to my house? Whatever." Yeah. So they want to see what what's he gonna say when he's not there, and they quickly come the the section the topic quickly comes up that Luke's car looks an awful lot like an unmarked police mark police car. <laughs> but Ken's like, oh no, don't worry, it's 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 not an undercover police car. Don't worry, like because these people in that area know what the fuck they're looking what for. Kind of car was it? It was like uh, it was like a crown it was like a crown Vic, yeah. It was like, but it had no plates on it or anything. It was like, but it was a common car back then, right? So they really didn't think this through. It wasn't a Crown Vic, was it really? I don't know. It was. It was. Oh. It, they don't say what model it was it specifically, wasn't. but it was. It was a cop. It was enough to to make them look like a cop. Being car. in the van with the recording, and you hear them say that, and you're like, abort, abort, abort. Exactly. <laughs> don't come back. Exactly. So. He goes, like, he doesn't know this at the time because he's got people listening, right? So he goes back, and after that awkward moment, uh... Imagine we said, like, I'm gonna kill this guy when he comes back. Mm-hmm, exactly. But, uh, after the awkward moment... Shakes, I'm gonna kill his ass. Exactly. So, whatever, the end of the night, nothing's, nothing happens. Billy is not aggressive to him. Luke is thank- says, like, oh, thanks for the help with the, with the job applications, buddy. Gives him a half pack of smokes. So he just meets this guy... He's trying to play the super nice guy card, and he's like, oh, shit, like, am I being way too nice? Is he going to think I'm a cop? Like, the entire time in this book that I read about this, this guy's just constantly, like, in his own head, like, oh, fuck, am I going to get caught? Like, is this guy going to kill me? Because obviously... a sketchy thing to do is give someone a half pack of smokes without them asking for it. Exactly. Like, he asked him for one. He asked him for one smoke. Oh, okay. if you're and asking him for half them all pack. night, and you just say, here, yeah, okay. He said he only gave him one smoke, but then he gave him a half pack. Anyway, you just but, told him where to apply. If you actually gave him a job, yeah, you could give him that. Yeah. So, so after that, like the, the night ends, obviously, like a few days later, Luke's drop, Luke drops off a case of beer at Billy's and says like, oh boys, I'm just going away for the weekend. Here's a case of beer. Have a nice night. Blah, 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 blah. 
he goes away for the weekend to uh, St. Catharines to go visit his son. But when he's what he's really going to do is to, he's going away so that the cops can listen to see if Billy believes his alibi. Like if Billy believes that he's actually a guy from New Brunswick there to just be a, a friend. Yeah. Right. So when Luke comes back from the weekend away, he finds out that there is a recording from Billy's apartment saying that everyone there thinks he's a cop. <laughs> everyone at that party thinks he's a cop. Like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. Why I don't trust him. But they determined that this was like way past midnight. They'd been drinking for 10, 12 hours and they were just wasted. So they don't, when the truth comes out. What yes, are they talking about? But so they just come up with a plan. So Neil Jessup comes up with a plan with Luke. Does so, Luke just like sprinkle crack in the apartment when he's there? <laughs> so that he hopes they find it, smoke it, and then start blabbering about how they think. <laughs> just like sprinkle some here, sprinkle that's, some there. Like, that's uh, that's one way to cut corners. Like a little Pez dispenser. Like, <laughs> sprinkle crack on them. Let's get out of here. Yeah. So yeah. So Neil Jessup has a. So Luke has an interview. Uh, has a meeting with Neil Jessup. They decide that Luke's just going to be careful. He's not going to hang out with those guys after 10 p.m. But we need a fucking plan to get. Billy and we need isolated. A new fucking car. Yeah, <laughs> I, I knew you were gonna love that. Get rid of it. Uh-huh. So they need a plan to get Billy isolated away from everyone, so he'll tell Luke about the murder of Ronald Lougheed, right? So if you get him away from each other, get him comfortable, he'll maybe start bragging, shoot the shit. Yeah, I fucking killed this guy. Whatever, right? So what do the boys think of? What do the RCMP and the Windsor Police think of? You said it. Road trip. To New Brunswick? Their boys are going to go on a run, road trip to New Brunswick. What? Yeah, so they're going to make Luke take these couple of down-homers down home for a, for a weekend so that he'll, they'll be in the car with him for like 20 hours. They're driving. They're going to drive from Windsor all the way to New Brunswick to try and get this guy to confess to a murder. Isn't this great? Wow. Right? So that's right. They're going to wire up Luke's car, have Ken and Billy drive with him because Ken's the agent, right? He's working for the cops. Right, Ken. So uh, Luke and Ken are there to try and kind of bait Billy into talking about what happened, okay. right? And the and the cars wired up, and they have 19 hours to get from Windsor to New Brunswick, right? So uh, Luke's backstory is that he has uh, court with his old lady. He's got to determine custody, that kind of thing. He doesn't really take that much time to convince Billy that he has a legit reason to go, but Billy just wants to go to New Brunswick. Yeah. But Billy doesn't have money to go to New Brunswick. So they start thinking of different of different scams that Billy can make some money. Like they start, they go to a pawn shop, think, okay, I'm gonna smash and grab. But Luke doesn't want them to commit crimes during while he's under their watch, right? So Wait, he's that's that's their process of thinking. Like, hey, yeah. let's go on a road trip. Oh, I need some money. Hey, let's break into a a pawn like, shop. <laughs> yeah, like there's like this chapter where it's like with this whole chapter where they're talking about yeah, like oh, Billy was gonna try and scam this. Billy was trying to scam yeah. this. But Luke like detracts him, saying like he his cover story would be would be blown. Like I can't be fucking around with you because I need to go back to home to, for court. Yeah. Right. So they need to go from Windsor to Grand Salt or Grand Sioux, New Brunswick, and then drive home to Bath. So yeah, Luke was gonna go drive from Windsor to Grand Salt, New Brunswick, then drive home to Bathurst for a few days of rest. He's gonna come back to Grand Salt and then drive the boys back to Windsor. Right. So the road trip begins on March 18th. And like I said, Billy does not have money for this trip, right? But he's like, I'm going to come. So in order for Billy to have money for the trip, the police stage a purse robbery for Luke at a convenience store down the road from his house. Oh, my God. So so I I told you that Billy lives at the corner, basically right off the corner of Wellington and College, College Avenue in Windsor. So people who are from the city, they know what I'm talking about. So I'm assuming that they picked up Billy and drove 
to the Beckers, which is now a Max, on Campbell and College. Yeah. Right? And so they set up this situation where there's going to be a like a bait purse in a car, and Luke is going to go in the in the store, get smoked, come out, notice this purse, steal the purse, give it to Billy so he has money for this trip. Wow. Wow, right? Elaborate so that they can get this guy to be able to go on this trip. Not not even to try and get him to confess, but even to go on the trip. So they set it up. Luke uh, Luke fills up the can- tank, they're gets smokes. To give him money without him knowing that they're yes. essentially giving – that's such a weird thing to try and do. Like I know, right? That's what Kimmy looks suspicious. You can't just plop it on the ground or something. Yeah, exactly. Like, like it would be too easy. Like this guy would figure it out. Like I don't, I don't know. Like or you could just like if he's walking somewhere, you can just leave it in an envelope somewhere. Yeah, with a fake name on it. Like yeah, or like even just have Ken be in on it. Like or a coat with the wallet in. Yeah, yeah. It's so but strange. Someone else might pick. I don't know. That's crazy. Yeah. So so uh, they fill up smokes. They get gas. They have Luke rob the fake purse from the fake car so Billy can have his three hundred dollars. Oh, there was no one there. It was just in the car. It was just in a oh, car. They set up okay. this car as a bait car. It was gonna so be that's like, like the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, it, I it's, thought you meant there was a lady like an oh, intern, no, 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 no. pull a cop that no. they just made be the poor girl. No, they did. They took it pretty easy. They like, just had Luke just like so go into basically. Yeah. He punches her out. He's the hero. <laughs> okay, I'm there. I know what's going on. I get it, yeah, but uh, so so Billy's got his three hundred bucks, right? And he splits it with uh, he splits it with Ken. So they got bucks. That's yeah, it <laughs> to go to, to go to New Brunswick and, and he back. Split it. And he split it, and they're gonna use. He, he says, "Okay, you got to pay for your food, and you got to pay for your food and hotel." But uh, Luke's gonna take care of the gas because he's got to pretend that he's like a recovering addict, right? He doesn't have a lot of money. He's gonna pay the the gas food and hotel for one fifty. No, 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 no. Oh. Yeah, that's what he's making him try and stretch it, right? And you have to go spend the weekend in New Brunswick, so you're gonna have one hundred fifty bucks. <laughs> but you have to spend that on gas and. Hotel. So Luke is taking care of the gas, oh. but he says to Billy, "Okay, you have to take care of your own food and your hotel, so that he that's doesn't come off." Money. I know. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's not enough. It's not enough. Well, it's, it's never enough. Ninety-seven. Really shitty motel. Maybe. You get a motel for sixty bucks. Anyway, so shortly after they get this three hundred bucks for Billy, they get on the four hundred one and they start their nineteen-hour trip. So, how long do you think it takes before he starts to talk? I don't know. When they get to Chatham, he yeah. says, "Hey, that's where we wanted to dump the body, but we didn't have enough gas." So Luke says, "Oh, really? Where did you want to dump it?" And uh, and Billy says, "The West Side." And so he just like files that away and he's like, okay, he's not going to pry too much, but he's like, okay, I filed that away. That's on rec- record that he knows where the body was dumped. They wanted to dump it before Did they record it. It's in the, it's in the car. So it's recorded. Wired. Yep. It's all wired up. He is he wired or is the car? Wired? The car is wired okay, up. Gotcha. Right. So they've got it right Wow. anyway. But shortly after Luke's get pulled over for speeding. <laughs> really? So the undercover cop gets pulled over for speeding because he's so excited. Like, getting in this car with these people. Like, yeah, so just yeah. before Toronto, he gets, uh, he gets pulled over for speeding. And in the, and in the book, he's like, ah, shit. Like he's like, he's worried about blowing his cover. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so they get back on the road, they get through Toronto, uh, on the North side of Toronto or around Brockville, Billy starts to open up about the murder. Right. So Billy says he wished he had killed Ronald with a hammer because it would have been easier to get rid of the hammer. Right, she's so like, "Oh man, I wish I should have just I should have just did that guy with a hammer. It would have been way easier, less less hassle." Yeah. So he's just saying it like to himself. He's a bit of an asshole. He's abrasive. Every other word is fuck that comes out of this guy's mouth. Yeah. He's not very intelligent, right? So they drive a little longer in between Kingston and Montreal. Ken got cocky, right? The agent, the guy who's working with the cops, the other 
uh, accomplice. So Ken got cocky and started asking Billy. He's like, well, yeah, like, what happened? Like, why did you guys kill uh, kill Ron again? Like, who what? was all there? And, oh. like, why were they all there? Like, why were they all, like, helping you? Like, I don't know. Like, after, like, what? Like, Billy doesn't really say much. And after, like, a few seconds, he just turns to Luke. He goes, are you a cop? Wow. <laughs> and, like, Luke's, like, blood pressure, like, skyrockets, right? And he's, like, thinking, like, he's like, what the fuck, Ken? Like, I'm going to kill you. Like, yeah. what is going on? Like, why are you being so heat? Yeah. And he goes, he, he waits for a second. He goes, Billy, come on. I don't know. I don't know your business. I don't care about your business. I'm a friend. Like, yeah. whatever whatever happens, happens. Like, I'm not here to butt. Like, whatever. So he, he plays it really well. Wow. Right? So, uh, and then shortly after, Luke calms down. Luke calms the situation down. He tells him that he's cool, whatever, and says, Billy goes, okay, this stays in the car. And he starts opening up. Wow. So this is a quote from the book that Josh slash Luke would later write called The Catching of a Killer. Quote, so well, anyway, why do you think he killed him? I don't know. They didn't mention that at all. So yeah, that, I, I did that on purpose because I wanted to ask you this. So why do you, what, what, what uh, do you think? What, a quarter pack instead of a half pack of smokes? I don't know. That's a good good start. From the catching of a killer, quote, He stole from me, right in my own house. He stole a smoke from my pack, which I had laid on the table between Wahoo and I. He stole a pack of smoke. He stole a smoke. A smoke? So here's the story. Oh, so I was almost right. (laughs) You were almost right. Oh, my God. A cigarette? So Billy and Wahoo were smoking crack, and Ron was upset that they hadn't given him any. So he's so Ronnie said that he was going to rat them out for previous crimes, right? So they're all part of the same crew, whatever. Yeah. So Ronnie Ron Ronald said that he was going to rat out Billy and Wahoo. So Billy said, quote, when he said that, I walked to my bedroom, took out my twenty two from my closet, walked back to him at the table, and shot him in the back of the head. He fell to the floor. Then Wahoo and I got up, kicked him in kicked him a couple of times in the head, and left him there lying for three hours. Later, we dragged him and threw him down the stairs to my basement. I shot the fuck because he was going to rat on us. Wow. Wow. Cold-blooded, bro. <laughs> so he puts down the crack pipe and takes up the gun. One smoke. Wow. He was pissed. He was so, pissed. So, that he... But then he started saying he was going to rat on yes. them? Yes. So he got upset with them because they didn't smoke crack with him. Yeah. And he said, he said fuck you, I'm going to take a smoke. And yeah. he says, well, fuck you, I'm going to go rat on the cops for you for all that shit you guys did. Yeah. Wow. And so in their erratic state, Billy went and killed him. That's crazy. One shot. But then they boot partied him and then threw him down the fucking stairs, dude. Was he not dead yet? He was dead. No, they said they laid him there for three hours before they threw him down the stairs. Wow. Isn't that fucking brutal? That's crazy. That's horrible. So that was the end of talking time. Damn. <laughs> that was the end of talking time. So Luke, uh, like the rest of the trip is pretty uh, uneventful. Luke drops off Bill. They said the weather was shit, but that's fucking Quebec yeah. and Maritimes in uh, in April, so or May, March. Uh, so Luke drops off Billy and Ken in Grand Salt, New Brunswick, the next day, and he went home. Oh, so yeah, it would have been so snowy up there. Exactly, it's like, brutal, <laughs> brutal drive. So uh, idea. <laughs> so Ken's like, I mean, so Luke goes, okay, um, yeah. So so uh, Luke drops off Ken and Billy back in Grand Salt. He goes to Bathurst to go hang out. Uh, rest for a few days. He said he slept like a baby for like 15 hours after that trip because he was so stressed out. Yeah. Right? And so he gets a couple days off, but he has to go back and pick them up Saturday morning. His his cover was that his court case was Friday morning. Yeah. Right? So he drops them off Thursday night, 
spends all day Friday at home, chills, whatever, goes, picks them up like midday Saturday to yeah. go, to go back home to Windsor. Right. But he thinks like, Oh man, like can't like the Nova Scotia, like can't the new Brunswick police go pick them up. Like I have a confession. Yeah. I have this, like Kent Lee calls his boss says, okay, can we pick them up and bring them back to Windsor? Do you think that's that easy? Probably not. It's not going to be that easy. What they do is that they decide not to get another agency involved. So they don't want New Brunswick people to have to bring these prisoners all the way back to Windsor, right? Because there's a there's a extradition period, right? Yeah. Extradition, all that shit. So they think it's easier if Luke goes back and picks them up in Grand Salt and drives them back to Windsor instead. And then they'll just arrest him in Windsor. Because, you know, you got to bring the car back to Windsor. Makes sense. Can't they just, like, send one <laughs> car to follow them and make sure they get back? Well, like... well, here's the thing. Here's the thing I didn't uh, I didn't know, uh, say before. Um, so when he's going to uh, New Brunswick from Windsor, he has, like, cover – he has a cover team with him. It's called oh, a spin okay. team. He has people that are covering his ass. He has at least four cars. Oh, I that thought are... he was alone. Like... No, 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 no. So he has his oh. – ha- like, this was all – this is – Yeah, so they, they do have his – they're covering his ass. Oh, okay. So he goes back to yeah, pick up – drive back. I would do that. Yeah. They're paying. <laughs> exactly. So he says that uh, he he talks to Jessup and he they say like okay like er, that that's great like the murder confession's there but we don't have the murder weapon right so like we need you to try and get them to tell you where the murder weapon is destroyed it because he said it's easier than a hammer right? I don't know right so we don't know and uh, so what they say is like okay we're gonna set up a hotel room in Kingston for you on the drive home okay. so you're about half like, at least halfway like three quarters oh, well, I don't know two thirds of the way there maybe. But like I said, the weather is horrible, right? Yeah. So you can you can play it off. Okay, we need to stay over. And they're going to wire up a couple hotel rooms on the drive, right? Okay. So they wire up a couple hotel rooms. They get to Kingston. Like the, the drive there is not is not uh, too uh, eventful. So when he picks up Ken and Billy, he learns quickly that Billy got into an argument while he was in Grand Salt and put a knife to someone's throat. So he's like Luke feels super guilty because like some of his down home cops might have had to deal with this asshole because he brought him there. But New anyway, Brunswick, New Brunswick is it says it's seventeen hours away. Okay, that makes most sense. I it's, thought it was way more than that. No, you can get there pretty quickly. Yeah, we'll have to go this year. We're going to New Brunswick. No, it's too late. We need to go in early March. That's right. <laughs> okay, so the trip back to Windsor with Billy and Ken starts right, and what do you think happens? Luke gets pulled over in Quebec for for speeding. Wow! Right, so uh, for the second time he gets pulled over in uh, in Quebec on his way home. Oh yeah, his spin team uh, told him that when Billy was confessing the murder to him, that Luke was driving like 170 kilometers an hour because he was so like jacked up, like when he was telling him about the murder. Wow! So like, they couldn't they couldn't follow him because they were breaking the law. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so he was jacked up. So uh, he gets pulled over in Quebec as well, uh, but everything's fine. Uh, they decided to stop in Kingston. Like I said, they set up the wire on the two hotel rooms to get Billy to confess about the location of the murder weapon. But uh, but all Bill, but all but all that Billy would say during those two nights was about the gun. Quote: Don't worry about that, man. There are only two people who know where that gun is: me and the dead guy. So that's not much, but that's enough. Yeah. Right. So so they say that's a pretty successful operation. The next morning, they get them out onto the road and get them back to Windsor, and Billy is arrested shortly afterward. What did, what did these guys do on the trip? Like, did they drink and party, or? Yeah, they brought beers. They brought they brought whatever. They just yeah. they chatted, but they said the most most of the time the boys just slept. Wow. Yeah. So he got like this is like a lot of work to get like maybe ten minutes of dialogue for the wow. whole trip, right? Yeah. 
So after, uh, so with Billy is arrested shortly after, and Luke gets to go into the interrogation room to let him know who he really was. And boy, that must be fun. Like, so he played this guy for a few weeks, got him to tell him his deepest, darkest secrets. Billy had no idea that Luke was behind it all until he gets uh, into the interrogation yeah. room and goes, Hi, my name's Joshua Olette. Uh, you knew me as Luke Landry. I'm an undercover cop. And uh, wow. I'm, uh, yeah, this is the situation, and here we are. Right? Wow. And, then he, and then he walks away and goes home. So uh, let's skip ahead to the trial. So at the so there's three separate trials, right? Because there's three guys, right? So the first trial is Michael Rainin, right? The guy I told you about at the beginning. He's not very important, but he was found guilty of his of his crimes. He was probably a driver and accomplice, okay. right? So Wayne Ross, aka Wahoo, was acquitted because the testimony of Ken Legacy uh, was all that the prosecution had against Wahoo, and they didn't see Ken as a credible witness. So Wahoo got to walk. For, as a free man on February 25th, 1999. So we don't know how involved he is, was in the murder, but he was acquitted and he can't be charged again. So wow. so when it came to Billy's trial, Luke had asked for some time off for work and was given three months. Uh, he didn't want three months, but he was given three months. And because of this, he wouldn't have been able to, uh, he wasn't going to be available for trial. So the lawyers had to get a continuance until the end of 1998. So like, because he took a leave of absence, like the trial got pushed back like a year. Wow. Yeah, it sucked. It was not, a, not a full year, but like to the end of the year. So when the trial started, though, it was an uphill climb for Billy and his defense lawyer, Mr. Goulin, uh, to to get anything really past the prosecutor, who was Mr. Bernardin. So on November 30th, 1998, uh, Luke got on the stand and told the jury and judge about his work as an undercover cop and that he was on the stand for several days due to intense uh, interrogation from both sides. So, but in the end, his honor, John Brockenshire and the jury found William Murdoch McKenzie guilty of the second degree murder of Ronald Lougheed. And on June 12, 1999, his honor, John Brockenshire, sentenced Billy to life in prison without the possibility of parole after 12 years. So on July 27, 1999, Luke, whose real name is Joshua Lett, got a letter from Ronald's family. And he's been in over 100 undercover cases. And he said this is the only piece of gratitude he's ever gotten. So, uh, and to end my story, I'm going to just quote this letter because it's pretty powerful. What a thankless job, eh? Yeah, 100%. He talks about that in the book, too. So, uh, and I quote, Dear Detective Willette, it's time now to write this letter to you from my family. You touched our lives even though we've never met. How do we express our gratitude to you except for you to know we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all that you did for my brother and us in helping us to let the grief finally pass and to let my brother rest in peace. Too many times it seems no one cares and life can be very unfair, but God sent us an angel and that was you. We were sorry to learn that in your line of work you never met one nice person. I wish we could have met. I know you would have liked our family, my brother included. He wasn't a bad person really. He was struggling to survive in a harsh world and his heart was too trusting and good to be in the world he was in. I guess God figured my brother had had enough too and took him to rest. You changed me too because I really thought I should consider another profession. I can. I became tired of caring, tired of giving, and I thought that if I could protect my heart, then I could survive. Now I realize that I was meant to care. I was meant to care. I was meant to give, and I, and that I should never let anyone take that away from me, because then I would be like them. They are going to pay for their actions. You've helped a lot of people in your profession, and we thank you for that, because we've been on the receiving end and know the relief of knowing what happened to your loved ones and for the person or persons. You may never know. Maybe someday someone in my family will be an angel for someone else. Maybe through this, we have all learned something. 
We thank you for taking a stand when no one else could, for not letting fear guide you, and for doing what you knew in your heart was right. May God bless you and your family and keep you all safe from harm. Sincerely, the, the family of Ron Lougheed. So, that's pretty heavy. So, Josh Willett is a retired chief from Bathurst who had a 40-year uh, police career. He started off in the military and uh, worked in the municipal force. He retired in 2015. And his first book that was published in 2016 is called The Catching of a Killer, Le Job de Tiluc Landry. And I read it for $3.99 on Google Books. You can get it on Amazon and Indigo as well if you're interested. And the book is dedicated to the memory of Sergeant Major Neil Jessup. And uh, that's it. And another fun fact. So Josh was born in eastern New Brunswick, and he was the 12th of 15 kids in his family. Damn. Holy shit. So Bill was the only guy who went to jail? So Michael Raynan got charged too, but he got charged with, like, uh, obstruction of justice and the transporting of a body. Wahoo got acquitted 100%. He got acquitted, but Bill got convicted? Of, yes. Like, how much time did he get? So he got uh, convicted to life in prison without... Life. He got con- wow. he got life, but he uh, gets the possibility of parole after 12 years. Oh, my God. Right? So he could... So he could be out in, like, eight years then? He could potentially be out, yeah. That's Canadian justice for you. Canadian justice, Wait. but... He's... He's definitely out. I looked now. it. I, I looked Is it up, but out? I couldn't find him. I did look it up, but I couldn't find him. Really? Eh? Yep. So, uh, yeah. So then that's the story of the catching of a killer. And uh, rest in peace, Ronald Lougheed, and to all his family members. Uh, we hope we did his story justice, and uh, we hope uh, you guys enjoyed our telling of the story. That's crazy. Yep. So that's my story, and that's what I'm sticking to. Nice. And uh, we hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, I think that's it for me, buddy, right? It's a long one tonight, eh? Yeah, it's our longest uh, episode your, ever. Past your bedtime. It oh, is past my bedtime. Bed. I and mean, fuck, it's hot <laughs> in here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's so hot. Sound. Oh, it's good, I though. I feel like I'm sweating under those lights. That's right. It's getting a little hot in here, isn't that's it? That's right. Where's Abs- the body? Where is it? <laughs> I feel like we're in an interrogation room. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys uh, enjoy our telling of that story make sure to give us a follow on social media give us a, a like on Facebook follow us on Twitter subscribe on uh, Spotify Google, Apple, wherever you get your podcast and please share and review the podcast it really means a lot to us uh, we've put in some hard work and some hard research hours and uh, please if you can give us a review it really helps us and we're going to be doing a uh, social media contest in the near future so stay tuned right? that's right All right, that does it from all of us here. And until next time, stay wild, wicked, and weird. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.